Hello, and welcome back to the Rewatch Rewind. My name is Jane, and this is the podcast where I count down my top 40 most rewatched movies. Today, I will be discussing number 28 on my list, RKO's 1948 comedy, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House, directed by H.C. Potter, written by Norman Panama and Melvin Frank, based on the novel by Eric Hodgins, and starring Cary Grant, Myrna Loy, and Melvin Douglas. Yes, I'm talking about yet another Cary Grant movie. I warned you there would be a lot of them. In this one, he plays Jim Blandings, an advertising executive who lives in a Manhattan apartment with his wife Muriel, Myrna Loy, and their two children. Tired of feeling crowded and taken in by an advertisement, they decide to purchase an old house on a large property in Connecticut. They initially resist the idea that the house must be torn down, but ultimately get excited about being able to build one to their own specifications. However, this is not nearly as simple or as affordable as they anticipate. The first time I watched this movie, it was late at night and I was very tired, so I remember almost falling asleep without really getting into it. But I enjoyed it a lot more the second time, and it's grown on me over the years. I watched it for the first time in 2003, then twice in 2004, and then once each in 2006, 2008 through 2013, 2015, 2016, 2018 through 2021, and then twice in 2022. And while I could barely keep my eyes open the first time I watched it, now I find it difficult to tear them from the screen when the movie is on. As I've said several times in previous episodes, Cary Grant was a brilliant comedic actor, and once again, he is very funny in this movie. Just watching his morning routine in the apartment at the beginning is hilarious. Jim Blandings is very sure of himself, even and especially when he shouldn't be, and Cary plays that very convincingly and humorously. Myrna Loy is probably best known for playing Nora Charles in the comedy mystery Thin Man movies, so it should come as no surprise that she is also very funny here. Muriel occasionally tries to rein in some of Jim's recklessness, but also gets caught up in the dream of the house, and Loy portrays that flawlessly. Apparently critics thought these stars were too old for these roles, they were both in their mid-forties at the time, and that it would have made more sense to show a naive young couple not knowing how to build a house, but personally I think it works better to show a middle-aged couple who have every reason to believe they know what they're doing find out that they have no clue. The movie also makes it clear that it's only because Jim is older and more established in his career that he's able to do this. At one point when he's venting about how everything's costing way more than they were anticipating, Jim points out that if he can barely afford it, there's no way a young couple ever could. And looking at this movie from a modern lens is kind of surreal because, like, imagine a single-income family of four being able to afford a house. To put things in perspective, Jim Blandings was making $15,000 a year in 1948, which is the equivalent of approximately 190000 in 2023 and the final cost of his dream house was $38,000, or approximately $480,000 now. It certainly costs a lot more than he initially thinks it will, but it's still doable for him, although he does nearly lose his job at one point, whereas it would not have been for a young couple just starting out. And again, Cary Grant and Myrna Loy are so delightful to watch that I cannot comprehend wanting to replace them. The acting and the writing encourage the audience to laugh at both Jim and Muriel while still finding them sympathetic. There's a rather beautiful poetic justice in the story of an advertising executive who spends all day figuring out how to convince people to buy things they don't need and can't afford, getting convinced by an ad to build a house he doesn't need and can't afford. And yet we still want him to succeed and share his frustration when things go wrong. 
Muriel's extremely specific demands for the house can be ridiculous, but we still want her to get the dream house she desires. Perhaps her greatest moment in the film is when she spends several minutes describing in detail the exact shade she wants each room painted. One should exactly match the color of fresh butter. One needs to be white, not a cold antiseptic hospital white, but not to suggest any other color but white. Another should be practically an apple red, somewhere between a healthy wine sap and an unripened Jonathan, etc. When she finally gets distracted and walks away, one of the painters says to the other, you got all that? And the other replies, red, green, blue, yellow, white. It's very funny, but also maybe a little bit sexist in a these silly women and their ridiculous obsession with detail way, but at least the movie makes fun of Jim too. He's constantly taking charge of things he doesn't understand and making them worse, from illegally authorizing the old house to be torn down to inadvertently instructing builders to rip out their work. So rather than making fun of Jim and Muriel specifically, the movie is really making fun of the gender roles they feel obligated to fulfill and the way society has made basic needs like shelter immensely complicated to obtain. And while some of that is rather painful to face, this movie manages to make the overall experience mostly enjoyable. It's thought-provoking without becoming too upsetting. While a lot of what I love about this movie comes from Grant and Loy, I also love Melvin Douglas's performance, and his character Bill Cole is probably my favorite. Bill narrates portions of the movie and introduces himself to the audience as Jim's lawyer and quote best friend unquote. He's kind of the voice of doom regarding the Dreamhouse project, pointing out all the ways Jim gets taken advantage of along the way and repeatedly advising him to give up. But far from being a stick in the mud, he has an excellent sense of humor and goes along for the ride only slightly reluctantly. There's a trope that's especially common in movies from this era of a married couple having a male friend of the family who is interested in the wife and kind of waiting for her to either leave her husband for him or at least have an affair with him. The character of Hank Entwistle in Monkey Business is like this, and there's a character in the movie I'm going to talk about next week like this. Bill Cole is almost like this, and Jim certainly sees him like this for a good chunk of the movie. But the way I see him, he's not actually interested in Muriel that way, and is in fact, if not canonically queer, certainly queer-coded. We do know that he dated Muriel in college. At one point, when Jim asks Muriel why Bill's always hanging around them instead of getting married, Muriel says it's because he could never find another girl like her, but this doesn't seem like it's meant to be particularly serious. When Jim objects to the fact that Bill always takes his leave by shaking Jim's hand and kissing Muriel on the cheek, Muriel dryly inquires if Jim would prefer it the other way around. There is also a running joke about Jim and Bill getting stuck in a closet, so modern audiences might interpret that to mean that they're secretly gay, although I'm pretty sure the closet metaphor wasn't commonly used in 1948. Bill doesn't seem to really show any attraction toward either Jim or Muriel, so of course I'm inclined to headcanon him as Arrow Ace. We do find out that Muriel somehow ended up with both Bill's and Jim's fraternity pins, which the Blanding's daughters find along with her old diary in the process of moving into the new house. When Jim then confronts Muriel about her having been in love with Bill, she laughs and responds with, Of course I was in love with Bill. In those days, I was in love with a new man every week. She considers her time dating Bill to be relatively meaningless and currently sees him as a good friend. Most of Jim's bouts of jealousy in the movie seem to be misplaced frustration with the way things are going with the house and or his job, rather than in response to any of Muriel or Bill's behavior, which is part of the film's effective commentary on how gender roles leave men feeling like they can't express their emotions honestly. Anyway, one evening, when Jim is working late because a slogan he's been struggling to come up with for months is due the following morning, Bill stops by the new house to visit Muriel, and there's a major rainstorm. 
A neighbor informs Muriel that her phone isn't working and a nearby bridge is out, so her children can't get home from school, but they're staying with a different neighbor on the other side of the bridge. This also means that Bill can't get home, so he'll have to spend the night in the house alone with Muriel. When he half-jokingly gasps, Think of my reputation! Muriel responds with, Don't worry, Snow White, you'll be just as pure and unsullied in the morning as you were the night before. And he says, That's the story of my life. Now, I feel like there are a couple different ways to interpret this. One way, the aloe heteronormative way, is that they would like to sleep together, but she's happily married and he respects that, so they resist. I'm not saying that's an invalid interpretation, but something about the way they deliver those lines and the way they interact in the rest of the movie doesn't quite feel like that to me. Another interpretation is that they don't want to sleep together and they just want to make sure they're on the same page about that. Think about how much better it makes the scene if Bill is asexual and his think of my reputation is his way of making a joke out of not feeling comfortable with the situation and her response is reassuring him that she understands and doesn't see him that way either and his that's the story of my life is him trying to pretend to be disappointed because an allonormative world tells him he should be, but he's actually relieved. This could also be because Bill is gay or straighter by and just not attracted to Muriel, but even then, the point about defying social expectations still stands. Since long before I knew the terms aromantic or asexual, I have been drawn to stories about people who are expected to fall in love and or sleep together, and then don't. It has always felt so encouraging to see adults maintaining close platonic relationships, even when society tells them they shouldn't be platonic. So I love that Bill and Muriel are friends who can spend the night in the same house without becoming overwhelmed by passion or whatever seems to usually happen in situations like that. Of course, in this particular case, due to production codes, there was basically no chance that they would commit adultery anyway, and all of this is probably definitely me reading way too much into something that's barely there. The following morning, when Jim makes it back home, after giving up on the slogan even though he knows he'll be fired, and finds out that Bill spent the night, there's a bunch of other stuff going on, with the contractor telling them about more expenses they've incurred, but Jim is particularly upset about Bill being there. Then one of the workers shows up at the house and declares, there's a matter of $12.36, and Jim loses it, going off on a whole rant saying things like, why stop there, just take everything I have, until the worker clarifies, no, I owe you $12.36. Suddenly, Jim's anger melts away, and he also loses every trace of jealousy and suspicion. This certainly supports what I said earlier about Jim's jealousy really being misplaced frustration, which I also think supports the idea that Bill is asexual, and that even if people didn't use that term at the time, at least on some level, both Jim and Muriel understand that Bill is not a threat to their marriage. Jim is only jealous because he feels like he should be, and it's a convenient and socially acceptable outlet for his real feelings. The last shot of the movie is of the Blandings family enjoying their front yard, with Jim reading the book the movie is based on. He looks up and says to the audience, drop in and see us sometime, and then Bill moves into frame and adds, yeah, do that, won't you, implying that he has been accepted as practically part of the family, and that if he is Arrowace, he's certainly not alone, and I absolutely love that. I've mentioned before that part of why there are so many Cary Grant movies in my top 40 is because I have a multi-day marathon around his birthday every year and Mr. Blanding's Built His Dream House is almost always part of that. I tend to watch this one on his actual birthday because the only specifically Cary Grant-related item of clothing I own is a long-sleeved t-shirt I got for Christmas in 2007 with a quote from this movie on it, which I will probably wear every January 18th for the rest of my life, even though I kind of have mixed feelings about the context of the quote in the movie. 
The slogan that Jim gives up on during that fateful stormy night is for a product called Wham, which is a brand of ham. He spends all night trying to come up with an acceptable slogan, but they're all terrible. I would like to point out that he's working on this with his female secretary, which means he has even less reason to be jealous of Muriel spending all night with Bill, but that's not really important. I also feel a need to tell you about my favorite bad slogan he comes up with. This little piggy went to market, as meek and as mild as a lamb. He smiled in his tracks when they slipped him the axe. He knew he'd turn out to be wham. The extremely concerned look on his secretary, played by Loreen Tuttle's face when she hears that, is so perfect. But anyway, he finally gives up and goes home, and after all the drama of finding Bill there and owing more money but also getting a refund, the maid Gussie, played by Louise Beavers, is serving breakfast, and when the girls ask if there's ham, she replies with, Not just ham, wham! If you ain't eatin' wham, then you ain't eatin' ham! And Jim does a double take and then exclaims, Give Gussie a $10 raise! And then we see a magazine ad featuring Gussie's face in the slogan, and I have some questions. What exactly did he mean by a $10 raise? $10 per hour? Per week? Per year? Also, did he actually give her credit for coming up with the slogan, or did they just use her words and likeness without her really getting anything out of it, apart from this ambiguous raise? Part of me likes to think that she got hired by Jim's advertising agency after this, but I feel like the more likely explanation is that a white man took credit for a black woman's work. So again, I have some mixed feelings about my shirt that has a picture of a ham on it with the words, if you ain't eaten wham, then you ain't eaten ham. But despite its weirdness and its flaws, I mostly have positive feelings toward this movie. And I will never forget the joy I felt the one and only time someone who hadn't watched this movie with me recognized the quote from that shirt. So shout out to my 12th grade history teacher. Thank you for listening to me discuss yet another Cary Grant movie. I do apologize if you're getting tired of hearing about him, but at least each of the four Cary Grant movies I've talked about so far has been from a different decade, so hopefully that has added enough variety to keep things interesting. Next up is another 1940s movie, although Cary Grant was not in it, so you'll get a break from hearing about him for now. In previous episodes, I've ended with a single line from the next movie, but for this one I have to quote a three-line exchange between two people because it's my favorite part of the movie and I can't help myself. And then I heard a noise, and then I saw- What kind of a noise? Like a sound.